Welcome to Polymathic Being, a place to explore counterintuitive insights across multiple domains. These essays take common topics and explore them from different perspectives and disciplines, and in doing so, come up with unique insights and solutions. Today's topic delves into a favorite counterintuitive concept, the benefits of lazy leadership. Buckle in and find out how industrious leaders are often not as successful to business results as we'd like to think. One of my favorite leadership models is based on the quote by General Kurt Van Hammerstein. I divide my officers into four groups. There are clever, industrious, stupid, and lazy officers. Usually two characteristics are combined. Some are clever and industrious. Their place is in the general staff. The next lot are stupid and lazy. They are suited to routine duties. Anyone who is clever and lazy is qualified for the highest leadership duties because he possesses the intellectual clarity and the composure necessary for difficult decisions. One must beware anyone who is stupid and industrious. He must not be entrusted with any responsibility because he will always only cause mischief. I want to focus on the leadership aspect of this model, and that means our focus will be on the clever and industrious, I'll call that leader one, and the clever and lazy, I'll call that one leader two. This model is a good example of one of the major dichotomies of leadership I continually experience, and I'll try to define this dichotomy through an analogy from my experience as an officer. Envision yourself as a platoon leader charged with the objective of assaulting an entrenched enemy of superior forces. This enemy has a fortified position, intersecting lines of fire, barbed wire, tar pits, landmines, trenches, and booby traps between you and him. This is a serious challenge. Only the best leaders are up to the task. You have been chosen because you have proved yourself in the past, and your team has it stacked with the best. Sounds like any program, product, or factory in crisis, doesn't it? Both have the same objective, same resources, and same exact situation. Leader one, this is our clever and industrious leader, looks over the team, reviews the situation, raises their arm, and waves the soldiers forward with a battle cry leading the way. Leader one is skilled, motivated, and leads by example. The team runs through the enemy fire. They crawl through the minefield while using their bayonets to probe and clear a path. They are taking casualties, but they strive on. They reach the barbed wire and cut and squirm through. They climb through mud up to their necks, and they throw hand grenades and find themselves in a knife fight in the trenches. Leader one struggles on and leads the team to the base of the fortified position. As they assault the objective, the ensuing firefight is an epic akin to anything Quentin Tarantino imagines in his movies. Beyond all hope, beyond all expectation, this team perseveres and comes out the victor. Leader one looks over the carnage, looks back and assesses the casualties and capabilities. Leader one lost 85% of the force. The remaining 15% are combat ineffective, exhausted, out of ammo, wounded. Leader one is bleeding, bruised, and exhausted, but a hero, right? Just look at what he accomplished. Let's compare that with our leader two, the clever and lazy leader. They look over the team, review the situation, pick up the radio and make a call. Hey, Air Force, do you want to blow some stuff up? Good. Here are the coordinates. They make another call. Hey, artillery, do you have any rounds available? Can I get a creeping fire along my avenue of approach? They make a third call. Hey, combat engineers, are you busy with those armored dozers? How about the mine clearance? When would I be able to get those assets? After a tactical pause, the stage is set. The artillery starts to suppress the enemy with precise fire. The Air Force sends in a sortie and engages with bombs. The combat engineers clear the minefield and begin to reduce the obstacles. Leader 2 leads the troops in, providing overwatch and security to the engineers and securing the captured terrain. 
The team soon arrives at the base of the fortification, and as they assault over the top, they pause and scan the desolation resulting from the Air Force's bombing runs. Leader 2 sends out the platoon to secure the objective and round up the survivors. They look over the carnage, look back and assess their capabilities and casualties. A report comes in that one soldier is down with a twisted ankle from a nasty dozer rut, and the rest look no worse for the wear after a two-mile walk. Lazy Leader 2 wipes a bead of sweat from their face and reports in for the next mission. But the task was easy, right? Lazy Leader 2 didn't do anything. Compare the effort to Leader 1. This is the dichotomy. Many times we laud the behaviors of Leader 1 because of the perceived challenges. The issue is that promoting these behaviors promotes those types of leaders who expect the same and the cycle continues. Soon, we have a culture where it is better to let problems smolder in order to have fires to fight than it is to eliminate the fuel and ensure success. Too many organizations have a leader one culture. Popular culture also supports these types. War movies like Lone Survivor and Black Hawk Down epitomize and glorify this behavior. I remember back in the Reserve Officer Training Corps, ROTC, one of our cadre who was in Mogadishu during the events of Black Hawk Down had us cadets watch that movie and then discuss it. The conversation was, to no surprise, about the heroism, the sacrifice, and the valiant gallantry. He stopped us after a while and told us we got it all wrong. He said that the movie was all about failure and he had us re-watch it to capture everything that went wrong as a learning opportunity. Does that mean there wasn't heroism? Not at all. But that heroism was required because there was too many leader type ones and not enough lazy leaders. This is where my eyes were first opened to this concept and I started to reevaluate. In project management, process improvements, change management, and lean transformations, one of the largest failings is that they are too often implemented in a leader one culture. This culture fails to look at the long-term stability of processes, systemic corrective actions, and long-term improvement plans. It is easy to look around and see the mayhem created by a strong leader one culture. It is even easier to see how much we reward that type of behavior. For example, at a previous company, we were monitoring all of the red crisis programs in manufacturing. Something struck me as odd about a lack of complexity that seemed to exist in these problematic programs. I sat down with a team and we developed a complexity score based on the green circle, blue square, black diamond approach to ski hill difficulty. We factored multiple variables, from test positions, to assembly steps, to first pass yield, and many more. When we applied this scoring to the factory, what surprised everyone was that the worst performing programs weren't the most difficult. In fact, there are most often blue square or less difficulty being led by leader ones. Because when you reward firefighting, you invite arson. The irony to this measurement and finding was how quickly it was quashed and buried because the implications were too damning to those in charge. So what are the benefits of lazy leaders and why should we take a hard look at our organizational business culture? In simple terms, true lazy leaders know that the fastest way to fail is to think they can or should do it by themselves. They delegate to the proper resources and hold accountability. They recognize that it is easier to address performance issues early and align behaviors from the start. They realize that while holding a person accountable may seem hard at the beginning, it makes the long-term culture easier. They utilize tools such as clear rules and responsibilities, solid planning, effective risk and opportunity management, understanding the critical paths of execution, defining the decisions, not the tasks to be made, and establishing collaborative working relationships. In this way, 
not running off to execute and instead spending the time up front allows them to leverage all the available resources to ensure the most effective and easy execution. While these leaders are willing to lead the charge up the hill in the event of a crisis, they know that steady execution ensures higher efficiency and team unity versus sprinting from problem to problem day after day and week after week. A favorite quote of mine that captures this sentiment is attributed to Einstein. If I were given one hour to save the world, I would spend 55 minutes defining the problem and five minutes coming up with solutions. This aligns with a similar concept from Taoism called Wu Wei. Aptly captured in the book, Trying Not to Try, this concept ties in the mastery of skills with the art of intentional non-action. Sometimes doing nothing is the right answer when doing something isn't going to help. Doing nothing often seems lazy, and we should be okay with that, especially when doing something doesn't improve the situation. How do we create a culture of lazy leaders? It isn't easy. In fact, it is a problem that has been around for a very long time. General Van Hammerstein wouldn't have had to come up with his leadership model if he had found only lazy leadership in leadership positions. The fundamental change is a shift in focus from short-term speedy solutions to the long-term stabilization of the process or program. It is also necessary to relook at the leadership development programs at most large companies that culture young employees to differentiate themselves in their short-term assignments. This fosters leader one mentalities without these budding leaders ever realizing the strategic consequences after they rotate on and up. It also requires leveraging a systems mindset to see the larger picture versus the myopic focus of discrete execution. Often, lazy leaders have polymathic tendencies to see across disciplines and, as our leader too demonstrated, bring in other disciplines to reduce the problem set. A culture shift, therefore, also requires valuing the cross-disciplinary skill sets instead of the focused experts. We have to stop rewarding firefighting cultures with quick fixes and develop cultures of true root cause and process control of the improvement. A new culture requires the flexibility to allow a lazy leader to execute, and it requires the resources necessary to ensure success. A very large challenge to overcome is that many leaders attain their positions through leader one execution. This means they have to recalibrate their leadership style before they can foster a lazy leader culture and recognize the traits to hire. This takes a lot of effort in the short term, but the long-term payoffs are massive. Every organization needs to look hard at the culture they foster and the leadership development they create. If we look for and reward a leader one type, we end up creating a culture of fires and chaos. If we look for and reward the lazy leader type twos, we benefit by creating a culture of efficiency, accountability, and steady execution. I'll append to the end uh, a few of the footnotes from this, from this essay. Um, first footnote is that the original quote from uh, Van Hammerstein um, versus industrious has diligent. Um, I've adjusted that a little bit today's vernacular um, to, to be industrious. Um, just makes a little bit more sense. For the sake of the discussion, lazy is used to break the paradigm that industriousness is a single and proper mode of execution. As you saw from the example, lazy can be an efficient networked executioner versus a relentless and repetitive taskmaster. A lazy leader finds the easiest path while recognizing that not following the proper procedures creates extra work in the long run. The irony is 
that the diligent or industrious leader often finds themselves violating more procedures and protocols in their efforts to drive execution at all costs. And the last footnote relates to that quote I said attributed to Einstein. One of the funny things that I'm finding throughout my writings is that many quotes that are claimed to be from a famous person are rarely or barely attributable to them. I hope you enjoyed this essay, and please feel free to subscribe. It's Polymathic Being at Substack. Um, we are also starting to release these, uh, these recordings into, into all the major podcast platforms. Um, so subscribe, listen to them, and uh, please subscribe to Substack, and uh, continue to get these emailed to your inbox every day. Thanks for listening.